Welcome to Tax Break, a podcast on tax law. I'm Rob Kovacev, a member of Miller and Chevalier's Tax Group. Today, we are talking about tax enforcement under state false claims acts and proposals for allowing tax cases under the Federal False Claims Act. False Claims Act has been around at the federal level since the 1860s. It generally provides for civil penalties and quitam or whistleblower enforcement in cases where there is fraud on the government. It was actually passed initially to address procurement fraud during the Civil War. A lot of states have their own versions of the False Claims Act based on the federal statute. But tax controversy and compliance lawyers haven't had to worry too much about the False Claims Act because the federal statute expressly says that it cannot be applied to alleged violations of the tax code. Then in the 1990s, something interesting started happening. Some states enacted their own versions of the False Claims Act without any limitation on tax claims. And in 2010, New York made a big splash when it expressly amended its statute to allow tax-based enforcement and create a whole component within its attorney general's office to review and bring those cases. In 2021, the District of Columbia also enacted uh, provisions modeled on the New York statute. And some very high-profile cases have been brought attempting to redress allegations of state tax evasion through False Claims Act uh, litigation. And this raises a lot of questions because there's already a whole mechanism for resolving tax disputes. We have exams and audits, appeals, specific courts and specific provisions for litigation. How does adding a False Claims Act uh, rubric on top of the usual tax dispute uh, format change tax enforcement? Is this going to be a trend? Are we going to see changes in other states or, at the, uh, or even at the federal level? And what does that all mean to tax professionals and taxpayers? With me to talk about these issues today are two of my colleagues at Miller & Chevalier, starting with Joe Rolotta, who's a member in MNC's litigation department, focusing on government investigations and tax controversies. He's a former federal prosecutor and counselor to the IRS commissioner, and he has experience both with tax offenses and False Claims Act cases, including one of the first tax-based False Claims Act cases brought under the New York statute. Ian Herbert is a counsel in our litigation department focusing on government investigations and related litigation. He has experience advising individuals and entities on a range of issues, including tax fraud, bribery, money laundering, and other financial crimes. So Joe, I'll ask you first, uh, just for a little bit of background, what is the False Claims Act and why should tax professionals care? Well, I, well, first of all, thank you, Rob, for, for having us today. And, and gosh, like I, I, one reason to care is because this is um, it is a reality uh, in a couple of significant jurisdictions now that plaintiffs can bring uh, claims having to do with alleged tax evasion uh, under false claims acts. Uh, but this is something that, you know, at least uh, tax professionals haven't, as you said, ha have had much occasion to talk about. Um, but it's been around a long time, right? It's kind of an interesting phenomenon. In some ways, there's these parallels between how tax enforcement has developed and how False Claims Act has developed. They, they, these, these processes have developed in almost parallel fashion, yet hermetically sealed from each other. 
Um, get, dating back to the the late 1800s, um, you know, you have states begin to impose in, income tax. The feds imposed income tax in the early 20th century, and and there arose this whole dedicated mechanism for dealing with disputes. There's exams, there's appeals within the IRS and within state revenue authorities, uh, and and there is, uh, in many jurisdictions, uh, just a dedicated uh, court system that is at least available uh, to, to essentially have a kind of a, a particularized fast-track litigation to deal with tax controversies. Uh, and, and there's a lot of emphasis on uh, you know, the peculiarities of the tax code and, and on harnessing expertise on the part of enforcers and on the part of adjudicators uh, to, um, uh, to, 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 get, to get to the right issue and to impose penalties where appropriate. We have these very dedicated lanes. There's civil enforcement. There's criminal enforcement. In between, there's these various types of, of, of uh, civil penalties. Uh, and, you know, we all know that lay of the land if, if we're tax practitioners. Um, and there is a role for whistleblowers uh, in the tax process, um, but it's a relatively informal role. Um, whistleblowers can go into the IRS or to state counterparts and, and they can you know, uh, attempt to kickstart an enforcement action and maybe they can even get uh, a financial award. But there's, uh, there's nothing that's really uh, highly articulated as far as what their rights are or uh, you know, what, what their expectations are. It's sort of in the discretion uh, of the enforcement authorities. So that's the tax side. Um, like I said, in parallel, you have False Claims Act developing for almost that same period of time. Uh, and this is, um, in contrast to the tax proceedings, it is, it is a, a mechanism of general enforcement. Uh, it, impli- it applies to uh, just about any instance of a fraud on the government. Um, and uh, it has sort of uh, applied historically, as you mentioned, in procurement fraud, uh, but also really in any area where there is a government program. And uh, you see False Claims Act, for instance, uh, applied um, in, in healthcare cases. So, um, as you note, under the False Claims Act, by very design, whistleblowers play a very prominent role. The, uh, the government can bring suit uh, under the act uh, directly. Uh, but there is a specific uh, procedure for whistleblowers to file a complaint and to trigger enforcement activity uh, by the government agency, to trigger uh, a proceeding in front of a, a court of general applicability. Now, these are you know, civil proceedings. Uh, there's a civil burden of proof and all of that, and, and a lot of the civil rules of evidence uh, and procedure apply. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the person that sues on behalf of the government can recover uh, multiples uh, of the award that, that, uh, of the amount that ought to have been paid to the government. Uh, and so there is, you know, essentially it is a penalty statute. And I say these are, the, these, these two sort of worlds have been sealed off from each other because uh, there is an express provision uh, in the Federal False Claims Act uh, that states very clearly this act may not be applied uh, to allegations arising under the Internal Revenue Code. And uh, many of the states that have adopted false claims acts based on the federal model, uh, whether by inertia or by uh, you know, in- intentional design, they have uh, copied the feds and, and included this exclusion, this, this bar on tax enforcement. And there's a sort of a rationale for it, which I alluded to earlier. We kind of have this notion 
that tax ought to be uh, enforced by, by specialists, uh, that uh, it's, it's a complex and unique area. Uh, and as I mentioned, there's that whole sort of, um, you know, history of tax enforcement. There's also this notion, right, that taxes touch everybody. Um, it's not just uh, a matter of having a regulated party or, or a company that chooses to um, play in a space that uh, involves the government. Uh, everybody has to pay taxes. There's no avoiding it. That means everybody has a tax obligation. Uh, and there's a thought that if you allow this very sort of uh, whistleblower-oriented uh, False Claims Act enforcement mechanism to be applied to taxes, you would have all sorts of discord, right? You would have business partners uh, who, you know, perhaps uh, become disenchanted with each other, hurling allegations that, that their counterparts uh, weren't compliant with taxes. You might have ex-spouses who were uh, levying allegations against each other, that sort of thing. Uh, and that's part of what historically has predicated this tax bar. But then, you know, as you mentioned, uh, things changed. Uh, I think Ian and I did a little bit of research um, just in, in connection with an article that we wrote uh, on the subject um, a couple months ago. Uh, and there was also a, a, a very uh, insightful presentation uh, at the, the ABA tax section. I, I tip my hat to, to Ben Eisenstadt at Kaplan and Drysdale for that. Um, but we, we took a look at the history uh, and we saw that there, there was actually a False Claims Act that was enacted in Florida that did not have a tax bar. Now, Florida, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, doesn't have an income tax for individuals. So maybe it didn't have that sort of a high profile effect or maybe it was less sort of politically radioactive on account of that. Uh, but for whatever reason, Florida had this, this uh, relatively different statute. And there were a couple of other early adapting states that modeled uh, their uh, version of the False Claims Act on Florida uh, that um, you know, did not, you know, some, many of these states didn't have income tax, but now they had a False Claims Act that at least theoretically allowed tax enforcement claims to be brought under it. So, you know, you have other kinds of tax, you have sales tax, you have corporate income tax, and these kinds of actions, these kinds of enforcement actions are brought under those state false claims acts. Uh, and then, you know, this progresses, uh, mainly in the early years applied uh, against corporations in, in states that either had no tax bar or that had a modified tax bar. Then all of a sudden, New York uh, goes and amends its statute, not only to allow false claims act um, not, not only to be sort of, you know, to remove a tax bar, but to expressly allow False Claims Act enforcement against individuals uh, with respect to income tax. And there are certain limitations in New York, which are kind of interesting, uh, but uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that later. But the gist of New York's model was that uh, this statute would be applied exclusively against high earners. So this would be people who made more than a million dollars a year in income. Um, maybe that made uh, this sort of innovation a little more politically palatable. And it got the conversation started, right? Because you know, within a year, within a couple of years of having the statute enacted, uh, you know, we started seeing high-profile cases hitting dockets and um, and uh, you know, newspaper headlines and so forth. And so, some some other states have taken note, and there's been legislation across the country to um, you know potentially uh, model uh, additional state false claims acts and local false claims acts on New York's and and this. As you mentioned, this actually ended up happening in D.C. in 2021 when D.C. City Council um, essentially copied New York's law uh, and um, that went into effect 
last year, and it's already generated some cases. So, you know, is this a trend? It certainly is a trend. Um, you know, we'll see if it continues to spread. Uh, and as you mentioned, there's, a, there's you know, an inkling of a suggestion that maybe the feds ought to be watching and may want to uh, copy some of, uh, of the states out there. So as I understand it, it's the uh, attorney general's offices that basically ride herd over tax false claims act cases at the state level. Yeah. That's at the right. state level. Uh, but usually it's the tax authority, the office of tax revenue or whatever the version of the IRS the state has that does all the tax enforcement. Do the two agencies talk to each other? What kind of coordination goes on between them? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I guess there's probably as many answers to that question as there are states that allow uh, tax enforcement under FCAs, right? Um, but, but yeah, it is, it, it is the attorney general's office at uh, the state level that, that typically it brings these cases uh, and that assesses whistleblower allegations and that decides whether uh, the state, the government is going to intervene in these, in these matters. And, and, and we'll get a little more granular about what this process is, I, I think, in a minute. But yeah, the, the AG's office is generally in charge of the False Claims Act. It owns the False Claims Act. Uh, and the AG is, of course, uh, independent from the Revenue Authority. Uh, it's um, yeah, often the case that AGs are elected. Uh, and if they're not elected, they're you know, generally um, high-profile political appointees who may have um, eyes on, on higher office. So they're going to have their own sorts of incentives. Uh, and you know, they may want to do things a little bit differently. Uh, than the revenue authorities. Uh, and, and, you know, there is a little bit of tension, uh, almost inevitably, in those kinds of situations. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, they do recognize that they have to work together. Uh, and uh, at least, you know, in my experience, uh, there is cooperation. Uh, generally, when cases are brought, uh, both the revenue authority of the state and the attorney general's office um, are, are uh, you know, provide insight and collaborate. Uh, and when there is a resolution, uh, if it's a settlement, uh, it, it seems to be uh, more often than not the case that there's a closing agreement that makes peace with all of these agencies. Okay. So who are these uh, relators, these whistleblowers? What, you know, what kind of person is it and where, where, uh, where do they get their information? Yeah, that's a loaded question. Go ahead, Ian. Yeah, it's hard to know. There's, it's a loaded question. And let me just take a step back and just talk briefly about the False Claims Act and the federal False Claims Act, the state ones are modeled on, and just explain a little bit about how you get here and what, what these whistleblowers, who these whistleblowers are that are filing the cases and how it works. Um, the, you know, so the FCA creates liability and treble damages uh, for anybody who knowingly presents or causes to present to be presented a false or fraudulent claim for payment. Um, and it is an interesting hybrid structure. Uh, so it's all civil litigation rules. You have to dust off your uh, federal rules of civil procedure. And, uh, but you know, these are inherently sort of criminal, quasi-criminal claims for fraud. Um, and the, the whistleblower, Rob, that you re relate, uh, referred to, usually is the one who starts a case and they file, they actually file a complaint in court uh, and it's on behalf of the government. It's a, the whistleblower is referred to as a relator and the complaints are key TAM uh, suits. And key TAM 
is part of a Latin phrase that says uh, that you're suing on behalf of the king. And so the, the case is actually in the name of the government, but the government hasn't actually brought the case yet. It's the, the whistleblower who brings it. Um, and the, the complaint is filed under seal and the suit is frozen until the def until um, frozen before the defendant even gets the, the is served with the complaint while the government investigates and uh, decides whether it wants to step in and bring the case. Um, and so that the first time that a defendant might get sort of uh, any inkling that there's a suit is probably when the government issues a civil investigative demand uh, for, for documents related to, um, to, the, to the matter. The government can issue these demands to third parties or to the defendant while it's investigating the case and trying to decide whether to step in. And the, that's the first like, big decision is whether the government uh, is going to step in and, and take over the case. And that can sort of bring the case in a, a couple of different directions. Um, and so the relator, going back to your original question, Rob, the relator is someone who has sufficient information to bring a complaint on behalf of the government. Um, there is a, um, a requirement that the, the information not be public information, right? And so as a practical matter, the relator is somebody who has inside knowledge of the company. In many cases, that's a former employee. Um, a business partner uh, could also be be a relator, but you know, you know, they can sort of come in all all shapes and sizes. And their motivations vary, right? I mean, or at least they can. Um, you know, you've got obviously you've got a financial award, so you know that's at least going to factor into the whistleblower's incentive. Um, most most whistleblowers are going to be interested in, in getting that award, but but you know some might be motivated, uh, you know, by uh, you know a genuine uh, a discontentment with 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 what uh, their employer or or the you know the uh, target whoever that may be with what they're doing, uh, and, and a genuine belief that there isn't uh, tax compliance, and so you know you kind of have as in any large universe of, of people, you're going to have some who are more sort of public interest oriented and some who are kind of maybe more cynical, uh, it, it really, uh, there, there's no shortage of, uh, of variations on that theme. Uh, but, but yeah, look, uh, for employees, current and former employees do feature prominently uh, in the universe of people who bring key TAM suits, uh, in part because as, as Ian mentioned, uh, you know, there is a requirement in the federal statute and a lot of the state statutes that the, the claim be predicated on uh, non-public information. And this is to prevent people from just reading the paper and deciding they don't like something and, and filing a lawsuit based on it. Uh, but regardless of who your whistleblower is, what their motivations are, it's inherently this kind of three-dimensional chess right? Because you've got to deal not only with the uh, government, but with this private party and their you know their their interests are maybe different, and their uh, their insight and their worldviews may be a little bit different. Uh, but you know, unlike in uh, a a tax case, they each have uh, a seat at the table, uh, and they each have an ability to influence how the adjudicator, how the court, uh, you know, resolves the matter. Now, what kind of uh, I guess it's called False Claims Act. 
Uh, is it just any mistake in a tax return that would trigger a False Claims Act case, or does it have to be a fraud or some heightened level of uh, of intent? How does that work? So, so the standard, uh, obviously, the, the the test will change by statute, and and so when we're going, um, you know, state by state, sort of what qualifies as a false claim will change uh, a little bit. But the general idea is someone who knowingly presents a false claim to the government, knowingly provides a false statement to the government um, in order to, to, to receive money. And uh, knowing is defined in the federal uh, statute as knowing reckless disregard um, or indi indifference to the truth. And so it's not sort of, it, it's a, a broader definition of knowing, but it's not any mistake on a tax return, right? It's, there, is, there does have to be uh, Enter a, a, a knowing component to it that sort of creates more of a fraud. Although what's interesting is that it's it's not exactly the same standard uh, that applies, say, to a fraud penalty under the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, you know where you've got to have really you know a heightened uh, set, uh, set, um, kind of, of knowledge. Um, you know recklessness can uh, under under the jurisprudence of, of a lot of states and, and under the federal jurisprudence uh, suffice uh, so it's in, in some respects uh, it, it's it's a little bit of a broader net than what you might catch under uh, a, a straight conventional tax penalty provision so if you're a taxpayer and you live in uh, or have do business in New York DC one of these jurisdictions, how do you prepare for this? How do you? What are? How, how is it different from preparing for an audit by a tax authority? Well, it's interesting, right? Because um, you know, preparation. Uh, I suppose, depending on, on how you conceptualize that, it can go back before there's an investigation, before there's a case, a controversy of any sort. You know, you can you can really sort of think about this as as how do you prevent. Uh, a, a false claims act or case from arising, or how do you minimize your risk under a false claims act, and 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 that maybe presents a little bit of a different uh, analysis than than uh, tax departments uh, are used to uh, undertaking. You know, maybe this is uh, where you've got to sort of um, you know look to see what what general counsel's offices are doing, particularly for regulated industries and in, in places like uh, healthcare and and in uh, government contracts. Um, you know, you really ha obviously, uh, you know, taxpayers do care about compliance, uh, and and there are, are plenty of firms out there that that uh, you know do what they're supposed to do as far as you know vetting tax positions and uh, you know conducting all of that analysis. When there's a potential for uh, a key tam suit, you you do all of that same stuff, but you might be more careful about documenting things. Uh, it's almost like you're you're constantly always in pre-litigation mode because there's there's always the potential, you know, then a relatively low threshold for somebody to initiate litigation. And I know that this is probably just horrifying folks out there who've never had to think about the False Claims Act, but it, it's like anything else. You know, you do sort of, you, you know, you appreciate the risk. You can never eliminate it completely, but you can sort of, uh, you know, undertake best practices to minimize it. And, 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 and a lot of companies do this sort of thing uh, in non-tax contexts already, and it may just be um, a matter of tweaking, you know, what uh, compliance mechanisms are out there, making sure that you have the whistleblower hotline, making sure that 
that concerns that taxpayers have, uh, you know, are addressed. Uh, excuse me, that, that employees or uh, you know other affiliates have are addressed. Uh, you know, that's not going to deter all relators, right? Because as I mentioned, you're probably going to have some people who are cynical and who are going to, you know, or, or who are just not capable of being managed and are going to you know, do the unfortunate thing regardless. But it is going to deter some people. Uh, and it's, it's, it's going to, I think, help to, to manage that risk. And then once you're in, you know, investigation or litigation, if you find yourself there, um, you know, you take it one step at a time and you remember that, you know, the government uh, is not is potentially not yet sold on the case. Uh, you know, there's a relator that's bringing allegations and the government may be still in the process of getting up to speed. And one of the sort of key features of early stage False Claims Act advocacy, if you represent a target or a defendant, is trying to sort of, you know, to the extent your facts permit and to the extent your circumstances permit, trying to draw a wedge between the relator and the government. Because if, you know, the, the, if the government decides to intervene, that's a whole different case uh, than if the relator is bringing the suit on its own. So you want to keep the government ambivalent. You want to keep the government on the sidelines. You want to keep the government a little bit skeptical. Uh, and if you hit the home run there as an advocate, you can actually potentially, at least in theory, persuade the government to intervene for the purpose of dismissing a case. Uh, it, it, the government can do that. And if you convince them that that there's there's absolutely no there there and this is just the relator going off on the wrong track, um, you know, that's that's uh, a possibility. I understand there was a recent case in D.C. involving the Tax False Claims Act provisions uh, in in the district. Um, do you want to? You have any thoughts about that case? A few. You want to? <laughs> you want to weigh in? Sure. Yeah. So I'll I'll set it up. Um, so the the D.C. case is one brought against uh, an individual, Michael Saylor, um, who and his company uh, MicroStrategy, which is a publicly traded software company. Uh, it's incorporated in Delaware and it has a principal place of business in uh, Tyson's Corner, Virginia, just outside of the district. Um, and Mr. Saylor founded the business in the 1980s and uh, and the complaint alleged that he has lived in DC uh, for his entire, for his entire, uh, the entire life of the company. Um, it, there's lots of allegations in the complaints about the houses that he purchased in D.C. and the social media posts that he made that suggest he lived in D.C. Um, but he never filed income tax in D.C. Uh, he filed mostly in Florida, where he has a house and a driver's license and is registered to vote. And the um, the D.C. Uh, attorney general uh, and and the relator alleged that the Florida conduct was all a pretense and that he was uh, doing it not filing taxes in dc when he should have been and and claiming residency in florida uh, for the purposes of state income tax um and in as joe mentioned earlier dc uh began to allow for for claims uh for tax related false claims in um the beginning of 2022 the statute was passed in 2021 and then started to bring claims in 2022. Um, and there was a claim brought in in August of last year uh, against Saylor and MicroStrategy. Um, and both of them, the, it, the claim was actually quickly unsealed uh, within about a week, which isn't always the case. 
Um, but then there was a motion to dismiss um, brought by the defendants. And the key here is that they, the defendants were arguing that there was no actual false claim to the government because Mr. Saylor and MicroStrategy never filed uh, a tax return in the district. So they never actually made any statement to the district that was false. And the, the attorney general's argument is uh, the failure to file a tax return um, is, is enough of a false statement uh, to trigger FCA liability. Um, and so we just we got a ruling just a month ago uh, from D.C. Superior Court. And, and when he uh, says we, is, you know, we don't represent anybody in that case, of course. That's just like we as watchers yeah. of the court. People, got, yeah. <laughs> people interested in the case. Uh, got it. Got a decision from the court a month ago, which uh, agrees with the defendants that there is no FCA liability for a, a failure to make a statement uh, to the DC to DC in this instance. Um, so it's a really interesting case, and I think we could talk about the sort of the ramifications of it. Uh, but I don't know if Joe, you had anything to add to sort of that high-level description. Sure, of and of course, it's still it's on appeal, I, I think, or it soon will be. I'm sure it soon will be if it isn't already. Um, yeah, I mean, a couple of additional thoughts. I mean, for, first of all, as, as Ian mentioned, this this is one of the first DC uh, False Claims Act uh, tax enforcement cases, uh, and and it was like it was the big one, right? I mean, this is the one that that uh, the Attorney General's Office obviously invested a lot of time in. You know, it's a really splashy complaint that includes pictures of, of you know, the uh, alleged residents of, of uh, Mr. Saylor in Georgetown. Um, you know, there were a few minor, uh, maybe one or two minor uh, D.C. False Claims Act cases before this, but this was the one that was going to sort of announce to the world, hey, this is here. Uh, and, and it obviously didn't go the way that the attorney general's office uh, contemplated or expected that it would. Uh, but this is a perfect illustration, Rob, of how you've got to look at the actual statute and pay attention to the, the sort of local eccentricities and, and particularities, right? Because um, the, the D.C. statute was modeled on the New York statute. Uh, and the New York statute, of course, if you go way back, it was modeled on the federal statute. The federal statute uh, allows generally... Uh, claims, uh, uh, False Claims Act claims to be brought where there is a fraudulent claim that is made to the government, right? Uh, so if you're, if you're applying for a grant uh, or, or for, for any kind of funds or, or for a tax refund or, or, or no, no, not tax in the federal system, but for like for a payment from the government, that's, a, that's an affirmative false claim. There's also uh, what's referred to as a reverse false claim provision in the federal statute. Uh, and that is where if you owe something to the government, like, you know, say a customs duty or something of that nature, and, and you fraudulently conceal that, that can be the basis for a False Claims Act claim. OK, so there is this concept in the federal statute that, hey, you don't necessarily have to affirmatively submit a false claim. But when New York created this particular provision for for tax, they, whether you know, intentionally or not, and I've heard actually competing accounts, uh, the, the legislature put in language that was very much limited to affirmative claims, right? So, um, you know, affirmative uh, false statements that were made to the government. So, you know, 
tax returns, right, uh, that are filed. And DC, uh, you know, again, whether with intentionality or not, they copy this exact language. Uh, and if you look at the language in terms of the most natural reading of the text, it seems to apply to actual affirmative false statements. Uh, and that's certainly what Mr. Saylor's lawyers argued, and they prevailed at the trial level. The trial court said that this does not apply to a situation where the taxpayer doesn't file a return. Now, from the perspective of the DC uh, AG and revenue authorities, this may be you know, particularly unfortunate because some of the biggest cases uh, that Office of Tax and Revenue in DC has been concerned about over the years are uh, residency fraud cases, where almost by definition, there is no local tax filing. The taxpayers live in DC, but pretend to live elsewhere. Uh, and at least if this precedent holds, those are not going to be cases that can be prosecuted under DC's False Claims Act. Now, um, you know, interestingly, New York has, has, has of course, become uh, more sensitive to uh, to this this notion that that non-filers, you know, perhaps cannot be prosecuted. And after Sailor, uh, it's probably uh, you know more. Uh, there's, there's probably a likelihood that that a similar uh, decision would be reached in the case of a non-filer case in New York. Uh, there's actually been legislation uh, to amend, to re-amend the New York False Claims Act to specifically allow cases against non-filers. Uh, and you know, at least the last, last time I checked, that hasn't gone anywhere. I think uh, in, um, if I'm correct, the, the, the governor actually vetoed that, right? Last year, yeah. it was vetoed by the governor and uh, I think I, I checked again this week just to make sure, and I, I, there's no new legislation pending uh, as of a few days ago. Right. So, you know, we'll see what the D.C. City Council does if they try to uh, reamend the D.C. False Claims Act to, to allow um, claims against non-filers. But, um, you know, if they don't and if this, if this uh, decision holds on appeal, then, uh, you know, that's going to be uh, the, the D.C. Act will be much more limited. Uh, than perhaps the Attorney General's office contemplated initially. So do you think that there's a chance that there might be a federal uh, False Claims Act uh, tax provision? And uh, what do you think the consequences would be if that did happen? Gosh. Um, so, you know, I was, I, we, we talked about this and, and I, I know that there are, are certain factions um, on the Hill that are very sort of pro-whistleblower, right? And it's a weird ideological mix, right? You know, you've got, you know, Senator Grassley, who's been a big fan of whistleblowers for years, and, and Senator Warren, right? And so you've got, you know, these this sort of like odd bedfellows contingent of people who are always sort of trying to promote whistleblower roles in tax enforcement. Um, and, you know, this is... Uh, just sort of my reflection on, on the False Claims Act, I, you know, I look at this one sort of sentence in the act that excludes uh, in, income tax or tax-based claims. And I think, gosh, it would be really, you know, technically, mechanically kind of easy to get rid of this, right? All you need is for one sentence to be slipped into one of these like omnibus like packages of of of, of statute that that seem to get enacted every every year the National Defense Authorization Act or whatever one throwaway line that repeals 
31 USC section 3729D, and then all of a sudden there's no tax bar. And, and that would just sort of, I mean, I think it'd be an understatement that, uh, to say that that would just create, um, I mean, maybe chaos is too strong of a word, but maybe not. I mean, it would, it would certainly put us in uncharted water uh, in terms of how to you know, manage and navigate uh, federal False Claims Act tax enforcement. Because as it currently stands, you know, we don't have an elected, separately elected attorney general, of course, uh, at the federal level, but we do have different components of the Department of Justice uh, that handle tax stuff uh, and, and False Claims Act stuff, uh, respectively. And of course, you've got the IRS, which is not just going to sit back and, and let whistleblowers, you know, uh, direct tax enforcement. So, yeah, um, I mean, that would be just just a, a tremendous and... and um, you know, potentially chaotic uh, development, at least in the sense of creating a stir, uh, and it would have to be just navigated by by whatever administration uh, is is in place when such a thing happens. But one one additional point to that, you know, and the reason why I think it it might be more complicated, uh, I agree that the, you know, the sec just repealing the tax bar would be the most straightforward. Um, and, and sort of direct way to to add tax claims to the Federal False Claims Act. I think there would be you know little appetite for a full repeal of the tax bar. Most of the states that we've seen, um, as Joe sort of alluded to at the beginning, that have repealed the tax bar bar entirely, they often don't have income tax. Others have uh, limited it like New York and DC to just high income filers. Um, and I think there's sort of a real practical reason for all of that. Uh, you know, one is sort of where you wanna put your resources um, as a, this is a case where, you know, when the relator files the, the claim, it goes to the government and they have to review the case and decide whether to step in and, and bring it forward. And so, you know, there's a resource question where you don't want, the government doesn't want to be, uh, you know, running cases that, that don't have sort of high value um, damages at, at the end of them. And then sort of going back to another point Joe made where sort of, you know, nobody escapes the obligation to pay taxes. You sort of open it up to, uh, you know, every restaurant where you know a server sees another server not uh, input cash tips, uh, you know, and 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 just like you can just see like complete chaos if you sort of don't have some threshold levels uh, or or you know some sort of tax bar uh, on FCA claims. And by the way, I, I don't know exactly how this cuts, but just a sort of bit of trivia. Before there was an express tax bar in the Federal False Claims Act, there was actually case law that that uh, deemed the False Claims Act not to apply to Title 26 cases, uh, just based on sort of reconciling the False Claims Act uh, and and the uh, the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, now, obviously, you know, legislation uh, if legislation is actually uh, affected to affirmatively repeal the tax bar. Uh, then you know that would call into question uh, that jurisprudence that you know effect, effectuates a tax bar on the principle of reconciling different statutory schemes. Um, but 
you, you know, I, I certainly agree. It would it would be a a, a significant transformative event uh, in federal tax enforcement. Uh, and you know, if it if it did happen, you would see a lot of a lot of uh, stakeholders within and, and and outside of the government just sort of scrambling to try to um, you, you know uh, articulate what this all means. Uh, and figure out a way to manage all of those resource allocation uh, and procedural issues that, that uh, Ian was alluding to. All right. Um, I'll just ask each of you if you have any final thoughts or you'd like to sum up uh, what uh, what your view of the state of play in, uh, in the state uh, False Claims Act tax area. So yeah, so... You, yeah. Um, you know, one thing going back to uh, the DC the DC law, there's sort of an interesting part of the trial court's opinion uh, where the judge says that and doesn't make a ruling on this. It's all dicta, um, but the judge says that you know maybe any false statement could apply, any material false statement could apply, and so um, you could have. Uh, the court alludes to the fact that maybe you could have sort of company books and records um, or, you know, some any sort of statement to the government uh, confirming company books and records, or even the court says false uh, tax filings from other states. And so, you know, maybe before the D.C. Council amends, I would expect sort of the next thing you'll see in D.C. might be a case where the attorney general says, um, that the false statements include some of these sort of peripheral false statements that maybe aren't statements made directly to the D.C. government, but uh, could sort of fall under the, the statute. Um, and then, you know, from there, I think there's a real question, sort of how many more states are, are going to do this? There's discussion in California and Michigan a uh, handful of other states where legislatures are thinking about repealing the tax bar in one way or the other and sort of seeing you know how the DC courts have handled it how New York has handled it uh, I think will inform some of those decisions and you know you, you might get um, more more states that are bringing that are repealing the tax bar and then being very spe more specific about what is and is not allowed I think that's a, that's a really good point. Um, I mean, this is like, well, there's a couple of things that come to mind. And one of them is just sort of like, I can't get it out of my head. So now I'll put it in your heads, too. I just, you know, I, I, I don't know if you guys are fans of Seinfeld, um, but there was this sort of episode where, you know, George Costanza was just kind of complaining about worlds colliding. You know, this is going to be the end of independent George, right? Like there's, there's the, ooh, sorry about that. There's this, this, there's this, 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 these two different disparate universes of enforcement, and you know they're they're potentially being melded together, and now you've got, um, you know, this sort of this this uncertainty that that results, and it's almost inherent in the nature of this this kind of development. But you know, this is this is kind of what we do in this country, right? We've got 51 different jurisdictions. There's laboratories of democracy. Uh, and we, you know, we see whether something plays out, whether it's a good idea, or a bad idea, and if uh, if an idea gets traction and it and 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 one state finds a way to make it work, 
um, other states might copy and, and maybe the feds would copy. Um, so I think we just have to kind of wait and see. There, there is an element of like chaos theory to this, right? Because you've got like New York making, uh, implementing all of these very specific provisions to address some of the concerns that everybody has about tax enforcement and whistleblowers and all of that. So you've got, they've got all of these different rules, all these boxes you got to check. Uh, and, you know, whether by design or just inadvertently, they, as the Sailor case illustrates, they, they might have, um, by virtue of, you know, implementing all of these, these, these rules, carved out a whole area of tax enforcement that they might have wanted to pursue under the False Claims Act, right? So if Sailor holds, if it applies in New York, then New York can't pursue residency fraud cases either, you know, potentially. Um, so, so, you know, you, you, uh, you fix one issue from, from the policymaker's perspective, you create another. Um, so it's, it's just going to have to hash out. Uh, I think we're just going to have to see uh, if states can make it work uh, in a way that is palatable, uh, in a way that accomplishes uh, what uh, policymakers uh, want to accomplish. Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll take it from there. All right. Well, Joe and Ian, thank you so much for uh, sharing your expertise with us. And thank you for listening. Uh, this is Tax Break. Produced by HeartCast Media.